Welcome to Where Next, conversations with Map Project Office, a design studio that crafts physical products for the digital age, bridging the gap between people and technology, the material world and the virtual. Where Next is a new podcast series tackling the role design can play in shaping our everyday lives. Each episode, we invite an expert panel to pull apart a pressing social issue and discuss where design may be able to make a difference. Hi everyone, I'm India Block, Desenio's Deputy Editor. Thank you so much all for joining me in this episode of Where Next with Map Project Office. This time we're looking into mobility and discussing what design could do to help create more equitable, environmental and efficient transport systems across cities. The title that we've picked out, Are E-Vehicles a Wrong Turn, is a little bit tongue-in-cheek because... While there is clearly huge excitement and opportunity around these vehicles, what we're trying to do today is take a step back and discuss some of the wider issues surrounding our cities and transport. We're not looking for a silver bullet to solve 21st century transport issues, but rather talking about how mobility is a lens through which design can actually impact any number of issues, social justice, racial inequity, discrimination and getting into the politics behind urban planning. How can design help to enact radical change and affect mobility within cities? We've got a fantastic panel here today uh, with a really wide range of knowledge and backgrounds, so I'll let our speakers introduce themselves. Dr Thomas, if you'd like to go first. Sure. My name is Dr Destiny Thomas from Oakland, California. I'm the founder and CEO of the Thrivance Group which is a for-profit urban planning firm in the United States that centers the needs and priorities of Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities, as well as transgender people and people living with disabilities. Happy to be here. Thank you. Andrea? Hi, my name is Andrea Rosati. I'm Design Strategy Manager for Lotus Tech Creative Center, which is the new second Lotus Design Studio based in the UK. My role in the business is basically to take care and influence the narrative of all the projects from the concept phase to the release phase out for the public. Dan? I'm Dan Hill. I'm based in Stockholm, Sweden. I work in the, the national government in Sweden. I work in the innovation agency there called Vinova. And our work there is really about dragging the government down to the ground and working from the street up and rethinking how we can have a sort of more street-oriented view of cities and mobility. And I'll shortly be taking that work to Melbourne, where I'll be the um, director of Melbourne School of Design. And Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Robinson. I'm a senior designer at MAP. We focus on crafting physical products for the digital age. So we aim to bridge the gap between people and technology. And we're actively working in the mobility sector at the moment to deliver more simpler and smarter, but also more people-centred solutions. So what are some of the problems with infrastructure? We know that congestion and pollution are well documented, but these are only the tip of the iceberg. We also have to consider, for example, the fact that transport infrastructure has historically been used as a tool for carving up cities along racial grounds through practices such as redlining and zoning. And we also need to consider whether our existing transport infrastructure is accessible to people with disabilities or other ways in which a city structure may prioritise some groups and disadvantage others. So, Dr Thomas, perhaps you could start by taking us through how marginalised communities bear the brunt of many of the issues surrounding mobility. 
yes, congestion is an, an issue and all of the various environmental crises that we're facing are issues. I think what is coupled with that is the fact that all of our societies don't understand those issues from the standpoint of how they affect marginalized folks differently from how they're affecting the general population. I think we also have not had an honest and transparent conversation as a society about how we arrived at those issues. I think when we talk about climate change, sometimes it sounds like, you know, there's a little bit of accountability baked into it, right? We're critical of folks who are over-consuming or taking up too much space or not thinking about the rest of us, but there are other origins to our climate change crisis that have a lot to do with how we have historically and currently treat folks at the margin, right? So these, you know, the automobile culture is the byproduct of the desire for convenience, but early notions of convenience were about distancing white folks and high wealth folks from low wealth folks and black and brown folks. So the core of that is racism. So when we're talking about what the other issues are facing us in the built environment or in the, in the roadway, we have to talk about all of the other byproducts of racism, right? And classism that manifest in the built environment. Specifically, when we're talking about mobility and transportation, the glaring issues that we're not talking about are inaccessibility for people who are living with disabilities, cognitive and physical. And again, how being racialized or how being queer exasperates what it means to have a disability because now you're being criminalized for having the disability. And public safety, personal safety beyond interpersonal conflict, I think has more to do with how marginalized people are parented, right? Infantilized in the built environment, scrutinized, always being questioned about where they're going and why. Um, and it just makes for a really unreasonable experience when you're just trying to get from point A to point B, which isn't what travel is all about, right? Getting from point A to point B is what a lot of us, you know, people of color are asking for because that's hard to come by. But I'd love to see our society get to a place where we can imagine more utility to travel and, and navigating space than just getting from work to home. Dan, would you like to expand on what Dr. Thomas has explained about how urbanism and transport infrastructure can feed into and support existing power structures within cities? Because those issues must be things that you grapple with as part of your work every day. Thank you, uh, Dr. Thomas. I think that's, um, I'm a real fan of your work in that respect, the way that you've reframed the question away from cars to much broader issues of social justice and the starting point for questions of mobility. We often focus or demonize, you know, one end of that spectrum, but what you just did there was open it up completely to say effectively, you know, what a what a city is about, what a place is about, what society about. Those are the kind of deeper underlying questions here. What's the environment about? And having got to those things, then we can have a and maybe a more meaningful conversation about some of the plumbing, which is really what when it comes down to it, the transport is, it's like the plumbing or the infrastructure, you know, infrastructure being the systems beneath the systems that connect things together. So even going beyond this kind of a human-centered reorientation would be a good start because we haven't had that in reality. 
but are more than human reoriented. So we're looking at humans as part of nature, not separate to it. That again gives us all kinds of clues for a very different mobility landscape. And again, to me, that's incredibly interesting, far more diverse than this idea that you have SUVs, big cars, and then you have small cars, and then you have a bus, maybe if you're lucky. But actually, then we're talking about a multiplicity of ways of moving around cargo bikes and e-bikes and scooters and buses and metros and subway. You know, I started thinking then about extra large, large, medium, small, extra small flavors, different colors, different types, you know, this menagerie of ways of shifting around or not moving, but, you know, things coming and going. We can only explore the diversity of that world if we go into it with a diversity of thinking and actions to begin with and putting diversity at the core of that, human or otherwise. Andrea, I was wondering if you could bring us the perspective of working in the e-vehicle space. Is this something that happens? You're talking about kind of managing how to tell stories and to tell narratives. What is the story of mobility for e-vehicles? Is this a conversation that is happening in the industry about how these new typologies of vehicles play out in these spaces? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, well, of course, like EV vehicles are the most important trend right now across all the industries. So the move of, towards electrification, it's something that almost all the brands are, are doing. For some brands, it's basically part of their DNA. If you think about Tesla, they, they were basically born electric in a way. For other brands like Lotus, which is the brand I'm working for, it's kind of a, a different and uh, really exciting challenge because you start from a, a sort of legacy brand that was focused on performance and uh, petrol engines that, that now suddenly is becoming something that is more sustainable, driven by electrification and as well open to a new portfolio of vehicles that are more towards lifestyle. I think it's really interesting coming back to a broader sense of mobility. We have on one side what happens within the cities, which of course is really, really important. But as we said, there are other environments beyond the cities that need vehicles that are pretty flexible, right? So it, sometimes it's really easy to say, oh, we are designing a vehicle for a city, but actually I'm living in a British countryside, for example, and it's completely different. So of course you need to maintain a level of flexibility. I also think that mobility and the ecosystem around it has got, of course, a really important factor in what is the infrastructure. And that is kind of beyond what a brand can do to a certain point, because of course there are really like lots of interesting partnerships about charging system, battery swaps, etc. But I also think that the ecosystem is the brand itself. So in a way, there's an opportunity to open up and include some really changemaker values in what a brand stands for. And that means give accessibility to other products that are not necessarily the car, but is also how you approach social, how you connect to people. So in a way, there is a level of mobility that is a hardware one, but also there is a level of mobility and ecosystem that is a softer one. And I think that that is as well a, another environment that needs to be kind of explored. And that's interesting that you use the word ecosystem there, because Emily, if I'm correct, that is a word that has a lot of meaning for MAP. Could you talk to us a little bit about that and where you see the challenges in mobility going forward? Yeah, we talk a lot about mobility as an ecosystem. I think mobility we see as essentially meaning the ability to move freely about a space and easily as well from one place to another to connect people with places, but also people with 
communities and people with people as well. And I guess as an example, in terms of products we've designed before, we've we worked on this product called Beeline, which basically is a digital compass which you attach to your bike and it basically navigates you through the city, but it's not strictly directive in terms of, you know, like Google Maps or something like that. So it's creating a more natural way to explore your environment and allow you to access places and see places as you wouldn't have seen them before. Um, and it's almost like this idea of glanceable technology, really. And then another project is Brizzy, which is sought to basically protect infants um, from air pollution. So it's quite a different thing, but it's, it's about uh, urban air pollution and helping communities and parents then connect up together to, to find pockets that are less polluted. So I think these are very different examples, but they're both examples of how we bridge people with technology and then use these smaller interventions to then build up a much larger ecosystem. And I think it's about connecting to a sense of place, but also connecting to a sense of community. And I think infrastructure then becomes a, a vital component of this system. You know, you have to sort of take smaller steps to get to the point where you can then really implement change within it, this, this full, full ecosystem. I'd like to return to something that Dan mentioned earlier, which was to describe transport infrastructure as the plumbing, how it's an underlying system that if we could get it right and design it so as to embrace the diversity we find in our cities, has the potential to begin addressing some of the social challenges that Dr. Thomas set out. One of the problems that is often presented is that the present urbanism of many cities isn't particularly welcoming towards varied forms of mobility but that these spaces are actually designed around the car. So given what you've set out, Dan, how could we start to broaden out that more narrow focus on mobility? I don't think they have been designed around the car, actually. Rather, they've been redesigned around the car often in most cases. Even someone like Detroit, you know, is an archetypal motor city preceded the car. It's actually only a couple of generations, maybe we can argue. I mean, maybe my grandparents grew up in cities largely without cars. So it's within living memory, the city that was there. The way that I unlock this usually often in Sweden is I show an old Swedish newsreel from 1930. It's called Those Who Get In The Way. But it's it played on cinemas up and down the country in the 30s. And it's a picture of Stockholm in this moment of transition. So it's got the city as it was, if you like, pre-car. And then it's got motor cars coming in there. And you can tell by the title, Those Who Get In The Way, that it was kind of like a propaganda film for cars. It wasn't really built, like designed like that. It just was something that was running in cities, probably in all of the countries that we all grew up in here during those years. The car was seen as the big tech of its time. And so it's kind of, this is clearly the future. But it's an amazing film because it shows kids playing in the street, for instance, and then a car whizzing by them a metre away. It's almost uncomfortable to watch. Or uh, someone walking out into the street reading a newspaper with the newspaper right over their face and not looking at the oncoming traffic and the traffic kind of almost hitting them. And, or two people standing talking in, the, in right in the middle of the street, which was completely natural. And streets for most of human history have been about that, about conviviality, connection, community, exchange. You know, if you go to, if you're in Europe at least, or you go on holiday to somewhere like Italy in a nice sort of um, medieval town centre, which is more or less as it was in 1600, 1700, the reason we go there on holiday, <laughs> they're so charming because they're full of life. They're full of, you know, if I were to be very cliched about it, old men playing chess and kids running around and Prosecco at six o'clock and so on. <laughs> and that's what streets are about. 
And then we sort of handed that over to the traffic departments and um, largely there was reoriented around the motor vehicle. So I think they're, they're lying there beneath the pavement. You sometimes see this. I saw this the other day in Stockholm, the kind of tarmac had worn away and there was a cobbled street kind of showing through. It was almost like the, the green shoots were trying to grow back out of it again. So I show those films, we reposition that stuff, we do projects about that, you know, just sort of exploring what, if you give the street to a traffic department, the answer is traffic, right? But if you give the street to gardeners, the answer would be gardens. So it depends who's in charge of that question, what's the street for? And we try and diversify that as much as possible, give people ultimately kits of parts that they can rethink the street with. And we can pull out many different, we being the people in the street in this case, the principle being the street belongs to the street which is borrowed from Michael Sorkin, American architect. The street can produce biodiversity, it can produce health, it can produce clean air, it can produce learning, it can produce exchange, theatre, culture, music, etc. It can also produce traffic. But it's about the balance of all of those things. And that has to be a conversation, a discussion, a dialogue, and there'll be contestation and agonistics and everything that goes along with that. But the idea that it's locked around traffic, I just want to push back on, Jen. I know exactly what you're saying, of course. It's the reality now. Yes. Also, I want to push back on Dan's pushback because it's helpful, though, for me to have an opportunity to hear from the perspective of someone whose lived experience is different than mine, what their understanding of like car culture's origin story is and how the idea that this is recent is something that I struggle with as a Black person who's a descendant of great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents who were enslaved. When you look at the continuum of time, you know, I'm only four generations removed from slavery. My understanding of mobility in the United States is much different from folks jovially playing in the street, right? And the introduction of car culture here had more to do with the sudden change in mode of production and industry in the United States because of the inability to exploit human labor in the way that they were at that time. What you described sounds amazing, really exciting, and probably in alignment with like culturally how Black folks in the United States would use the street if we weren't in the United States. And so I think even countries or continents that did not have slave labor actively on their mainland, they invested in that marketplace, right? So you're able to enjoy that version of streetscape because of the burden that was put on folks in other places. When I think about the future of our streets and if we are ever to reimagine how they're used, it's not about are we prioritizing the pedestrian or the bicyclist or the transit you know, ridership? It's more so about how do we revisit and acknowledge that origin story? And how do we design cities and streets that unapologetically atone for that origin story? And so I think when I was thinking about this question, it's like, I was thinking about what is a pedestrian? Where are the pedestrians going? What are they doing? And I don't think we've ever had an opportunity to, to have that kind of imaginative exercise where the answer to that isn't related to capitalism. I'm excited by, speaking of which, the autonomous vehicle advancements. But what I have great disdain for is the fact that we're applying that knowledge to cars. 
And so like, what are other ways to automate mobility? And I think that's where our views align, Dan, where it's this idea of not forgetting the human element in the streetscape. But I think one way we will forget it is if we don't acknowledge how we got to a place where we dehumanized it. We're going to continue to repeat that pattern. What Dr. Thomas has set out there seems to get to the heart of this discussion, because the technologies that are being developed around mobility are exciting. But as with all technology, its success will depend entirely on how we can deploy it. And if we can't shift some of the underlying structures into which we're now trying to fit new designs and technologies, there isn't much reason to believe that those breakthroughs will be able to address the wider social political issues that we've been discussing. Here at Where Next, we like to tease apart the big questions facing designers now and in the near future. Like, how can we nurture the next generation of design talent and ensure that the future of the discipline is fair, accessible and representative of wider society? As such, we're delighted to promote the Arda Young Creatives programme from the Design Museum London. The Design Museum recognises that the creative industries aren't as diverse as they should be and wants to contribute to a positive change. Every year, the Arda Young Creatives programme welcomes a group of young people aged 14 to 16 living in London who come from underrepresented backgrounds and guides them to explore all aspects of design and how it can be wielded. Through working with established and emerging designers, the group learns about design processes and methods through hands-on workshops, conversations, collaborations and co-designing opportunities. Participants also meet their mentors, who can help guide them towards a career in the creative industries, whatever path they may choose. But don't take our word for it. Here's some thoughts from last year's cohort. One thing that I can take from this program was that uh, all of us are designers in some way. The program has definitely widened my skill set and encouraged me to follow a career in design. For me, what I think was uh, involved is that I was able to get, gain experience from uh, experts in the design industry. This course has made me really confident that I want to pursue a, design, a career in design and it's actually given me quite a lot of self-confidence. So, to find out more and keep up to date with this year's programme, head over to Instagram at Arda Young Creatives. That's A-R-D-A-G-H Young Creatives. Or visit the Design Museum website at designmuseum.org. So, let's put some of these broader questions in the specific context of electrification of vehicles. Because e-vehicles are proving very alluring to a lot of people in cities, but there are a huge number of structures into which they need to fit if they're to be of use, not least charging infrastructure. Andrea, working in that sphere, what issues are shaping your design work? One of the issues that sometimes gets brought up is the safety of these vehicles in relation to pedestrians. You know, they're so much quieter than conventional vehicles, so people might not hear them coming. How do you start to tailor your design in regards to a question like that? Of course, like, there are lots of elements related to safety of the vehicle itself, uh, for which, of course, also the ability now to move to electrification can kind of give like far, far more opportunities of changing the architecture of the vehicle itself. So that means that you don't necessarily have an engine in the front that is exactly where the pedestrian will, will hit. So all this changing can help enhance the interior space, the visibility outside, 
as well as the safety in case of pedestrian impact. And of course, you have also all the other uh, kind of standard systems internally to, to the car, like airbags, et cetera, and externally to the car as well. And then in addition to that, we are now moving to autonomous drive capability, which means like having the ability from a car, both in urban areas and extra urban areas to basically have loads of what we call LIDAR, so the sort of radars and cameras around the car that can detect every movement and they're able to react in the best possible way. In a way, when we were talking about how the streets changed, coming back to the sort of the original archetype of like medieval Italy, for example, which I'm Italian, so I totally get that kind of type of street. And then after the Second World War, we basically moved into also separation. It's like if the archetypes became basically two and Coventry was a kind of I would not say a good example, but Coventry is an example where actually architecture and urbanism reshaped the car, kind of separating, at least in some areas, the basically the path for cars and the path of pedestrians. So that was basically kind of taking two complete different routes. And now we are going into, especially with EV electrifications, the ability of the car to go into city centers, for example, because they're not polluting anymore. You are just like re-emerging these sort of two archetypes together. So on one side is the car is kind of adapting to the issue that it caused in a way. So I think it's a really interesting time to be in the car industry. I also totally agree about the fact that EV vehicles are not necessarily the solution to the problem. Especially when we talk about emissions, it means that yes, you don't have any emission in use, But then, of course, you need to charge the car in a certain kind of green certified uh, energy provider, as well as you need to take care of where the car is produced, how it is produced and uh, all the social impact to that, which I think there are things that are happening currently. I think that the industry as a whole is on a really, really long path to be effective from that point of view. But that is the challenge from a design perspective. I think that that is the best way to think about future products. It's not just about design the style of those products, but it's also thinking about what are the production methods to create an element or another, where the materials are coming from and how the materials can be possibly, how the car can be dismantled at the end of the life cycle and reused in a different way, even if we are not yet in a sort of industry where actually the brands have 100% responsibility of where the car is going to. But circularity, I think, is really, really close to the topic that we were discussing and uh, is a major kind of influence in how we will design in the future. Dan, you mentioned earlier about different vehicle sizes. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about kind of the not cars, the not necessarily pedestrians, but cyclists and other kind of smaller vehicles that are currently sharing space on the streets, but not necessarily in a kind of safe or enjoyable way. And I know, Emily, that MAP has been doing several projects with cyclists and scooter drivers. And I was wondering if you could talk a a little bit about that perspective of mobility. Yeah, I think, I mean, for us as designers, it's always goes back to the human need. So I think smart mobility systems are always simple and intuitive to experience. And I think it's about doing the right thing for the right reason. So it's not about, you know, creating a product to make it just look nice. It's about striving to anticipate 
the best answer to a real human need. So I guess our first task as designers is to always think about the full journey. So even if it's, you know, we're designing a product or a part of a product, we have to explore the full journey and the total journey to then understand the perspective of that user. And, you know, people experience design as part of their journey. So that's the way we really need to think about it. Once we have a complete understanding of that journey, that's when we can sort of interrogate the smaller details and uh, modes of transport. But I think it's definitely more part of more of a bigger picture and, and a larger network that needs to be thought about. And I think one of the main things is also the transition points between different modes of mobility and how we can design these transition points as well as the modes of mobility that you're kind of transitioning between. That kind of brings me back to another point that Dr. Thomas made that I'd like to pick up on, which is this idea of, well, one, equity and not equality. So even if we electrified our public transport systems today, it wouldn't necessarily be serving everyone in the same way. And also this idea of accessibility, because a city that is accessible to someone who doesn't have a mobility issue is is very different for someone who does. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. I do think that it's connected to the conversation that we're having. I was thinking as Dan was talking about the latest trend. I know we're behind everyone in the United States, so don't laugh. But the latest trend here is transit-oriented development. And coming from Oakland, where I literally saw my own rent triple in less than a year, like when my lease renewal came, it was three times what I was paying before. And really like losing my job that same year because my car had broken down and I just didn't have enough cash to catch the bus. And then the bus, when I did find it, had changed its route and they didn't tell anyone. And you know, got to work late for the fifth time and got fired. And so thinking about like how awful transit oriented development can be if your entry point is deep poverty or disability or, you know, homophobia. Lately, I've been talking about this concept called housing oriented transit. And I think this is where I get excited when we talk about the electrification of the public transportation system, because we have to include paratransit in that too. Everyone's not going to get on the bus. I know folks think that that's the utopia, but it's not. But I think that what do we do with the stationary infrastructure, right? And so if you are going to disproportionately place these charging stations and depots in low wealth communities, can they also be equipped with like free Wi-Fi? Or can a community refrigerator be placed there? Can you put some stalls in it so that the local artisans can sell their goods while folks are waiting for their next trip, right? And so although I cringe at the thought of a car becoming an extension of one's home because I've lived without a home before and had to live in my car, I do like the idea of taking public space, public transportation and expanding that to consider the possibility of continuing to live your life while you're traveling. Because that's the other thing, right? It's like transportation is its own person. You leave your home and then you're having the transportation experience, which doesn't include living, right? So you can't eat on the bus and you turn your music down and don't talk too loud and, you know, don't sit close to the driver and like all these rules and And I think a part of the reason um, folks who don't even have other alternatives 
don't want to use um, public transportation is because of how disrupted it, it is to an already constrained quality of life. So what does it look like for me to exist in my local train station and not be traveling anywhere? Right. That's criminalized in a lot of places right now. You can't. If you're not traveling, get out. We need to address that. And I do think that prioritizing the electrification of personal travel is exciting and enticing, but I do think that it's the same pattern or the same behavior that created like suburbanism and this culture of elitism, right? Like that you have your quality of life and then this is mine and everything plugs in and connects to each other. This is so important to me and and I feel like I'm going on a tangent, but it's a waste of space. I'm thinking about all the parking lots and I'm thinking about even so-called bus lanes and how we're not using the adjacent sidewalk space in a way that's intuitive. And we need to rethink the function of transportation as being more than travel, which I know that sounds backwards, but everything else works that way. Grocery stores in areas that have them, they're catching on to this. You can do more than buy groceries at the grocery store. You can go to the bank, you can get your hair done, you can get your nails done in some places. You can get your car fixed, you know, while you're at Costco. So I think, like, why aren't we applying that concept to transportation and mobility? I think that, you know, that the multimodal approach to transport is, yeah, I think it's amazing. And I think one of those projects that I thought was really interesting is the tram fret project in France. So they're taking the old tram system and that people are using the tram system during the day, but they're also applying, you know, cargo, whether that's, you know, consumer goods that they're putting on these trams and then transporting them from further out warehouses and then pulling them into the city. So I think there are some examples of how, you know, you can use these multimodal systems, but I think there's definitely a way to go. And I think there's a lot that design can do for it as well. I would say that from my side, I'm working within the automotive industry, and this is like a really personal opinion. The reason why is really super exciting and challenging and at the same time really difficult is that it's really easy to consider the car a bad thing, right? And uh, I think that from a designer perspective, we have a big opportunity to do super, super small changes maybe at the beginning to make these products better. Of course, on one side, and especially when I was kind of young, you start working within the automotive industry thinking that it's something in a way easy to change, right? But the way in which the amount of components, for example, that are on a car are sometimes far more than what you have on an airplane. And those components means uh, 250 different suppliers for a single set of things. And those suppliers have their own production plants and uh, they are located in uh, other areas. So it's kind of a long, long process. And I think that it's true that going to an electric powertrain is not the solution. And uh, for some people can also mean that you simply move the problem to where the car is produced, which is fine. But at the same time, we are also working in an environment where probably because of lack of alternatives, but also because these businesses exist and they need to survive, they need to give work to people, you have cars and people are still uh, kind of appreciating in a way also a private way of moving. Especially as we said, I lived in, in Milan when I was in Italy and it was pretty 
pretty efficient. I didn't have a car back there. But then as soon as you, in a way, can become also an, an elitist thinking sometimes, if you forgot again about what happens in the boundaries and in a way, yes, public transportation or sharing mobility, that is definitely the long-term solutions to offer services rather than products. But at the same time, there is this in-between that needs to be kind of sold from a design perspective. And I'm really humble in that because I don't have the solution. I know what is the, the kind of blue sky solutions, but all the challenges in between, it's something that at least from a design perspective, we face basically one by one, which of course makes the process really long, but it's good. Emily, I was wondering if you had um, anything more to add about this way that MAP looks at the whole of like the transportation experience and how you kind of can look at mobility almost by like it sounds like you boil it down to like its very base elements this idea that mobility is being able to move freely how do you think about what free movement is in design? I think it's a big combination of things yeah, I would love to see the mobility sector expand into a much, a much more cohesive and connected system. And I think it's also the experience is within that that enable as many people and communities as possible to be mobile. And I also think if you're being human centred in the way you're designing, you also will intrinsically design in a more responsible way for the planet. I think there's often too much focus on a singular issue so, you know, when designers are designing a very small component of something, they often are siloed in that design project. But I think it's much more about, as I said before, looking at the whole journey and really designing for a reason and trying to understand that journey, understand the user and then design inwards. I think it's also about softening the scenes. So we spoke before about this understanding where scenes or transition points are within journeys and within also organisations and often outdated systems and organisations. So it's how can we apply design to smooth out those seams and make them as seamless as possible. And then again, yeah, as I said before, it's responsible design. So how can we rethink, even if it's power, how can we look at EV batteries and how can we, you know, think about how that battery could be part of a more circular system? How can we, I don't know, reuse the battery in a different way or, or democratise battery power in, in a better way? Dan, you work with kind of city governments, local governments. How do you find the process of getting people to think in a more joined up way? Very practically, <laughs> as in the projects we've done on the street here in Sweden and I also did them in Melbourne are about really just getting people to engage with the street, to be honest. And so when, when we do that and I pull you know, folk from the transport planning department or the health department in the regional government, they're totally separate governments. One's in the municipal one, one might be in the state or the regional level the county level, this person looks after health, the other person looks after transport or urban planning. But pulling them down into the street at the same time, basically making the street a place for meetings and holding the meetings in the street, I can then turn to, you know, we can, we can look at the world around us. The world is experienced as these complex systems. People do it every day. If you walk through a market, it's a complex system. And you're not consciously processing that, but people have no problem existing and with the complexity of that. It only becomes hard if we separate those things out in bureaucracies and, you know, keep them in separate boxes. So I can stand there and point to a tree and then say, you know, to the person who's charging health, that tree is a health worker, right? It's doing, it's doing work for people's health, generating health, literally. But it belongs to this person's budget line. You know, can you imagine investing some of your health budget 
in the tree that currently sits on this person's spreadsheet. And when you're standing there in the street, it's remarkable how obvious that is and kind of common sense. And of course, it's hard to deny in a sense. So the more that we do that, the more we kind of live in these systems, get down to the ground and wrestle with them and wrangle with them together collectively like that. It's far more practical than trying to go the other way, you know, top down through their spreadsheets, their separate organizations. That really doesn't work at all. Dan, you were making me think about my time as a civil servant. And I was blessed to be working at Los Angeles Department of Transportation when the rollout of scooters happened, the electric scooters. And uh, thinking that in my mind, like, oh, someone must be thinking about young people getting to school or like this first last mile solution. Great. Like LA is the best place to do this. And then seeing, um, starting to see the advertisements for them and like them being like white tech bro energy with, you know, suits and backpacks and like, okay, this isn't for who I thought it was. And then seeing the city attempt to impose regulations on rollout, like where these devices had to be deployed in order to create an equitable marketplace. And when I pulled up the map of all of the mandated deployment and the boundaries for deployment, there was a literal donut hole where the Black community was. Everyone had a different excuse for that donut hole. Some of the companies said, we're scared our devices are going to be stolen. And it's like, this isn't even profitable anyway. So what difference does that make? And that's not true. And then other folks said, well, we're especially concerned about the safety of the Black community, so we don't want to experiment with them first, you know? And now we are at a phase where we're trying to, we're investing millions of dollars in engaging Black communities to use these first last mile solutions that you've already told us aren't for us, right? In your rollout. And this is what I mean about vehicle electrification and, you know, uh, autonomous vehicles. It's very clear already who this is for. And I don't think folks realize from a business case standpoint how difficult it's going to be to change that if we ever decide to do right by Black, Brown, and low-wealth folks in the future. The other thing that I'm thinking about is Vision Zero, which I know is an international campaign to reduce or eliminate traffic-related deaths. And thinking about the folks, because I'm thinking about this concept of bringing all the disciplines down to the street, which is something that I often champion in my own work, although I tend to lean on trauma centers and social workers would use that model in that way. But I remember going out to a community in South Central LA and like giving my Vision Zero spill, you know, three people died in this intersection last month. And you know, here's why you should come to our public meeting. And a resident stopped me and said, what three? Because I counted 13. And I was confused because I, at the time, was the person who got the email anytime someone died. Everyone in the city would send the email to me. And I was confused. And eventually she shared with me that, you know, so-and-so who was hit on Tuesday was hit by an officer who was chasing a vehicle. And then another person said, yeah. And then there was an off-duty officer that killed this baby. And then I realized our Vision Zero data didn't include anything that involved a police officer, whether they were on duty or off-duty, those deaths didn't count. And so 
we again, like we have a crisis to deal with in even how our civil servants and public service providers think about um, the value of humans depending on what their identity markers are. I'm not too optimistic about local government getting it right. And I'm definitely not optimistic about private industry getting it right. I love this idea of a multidisciplinary approach. This is definitely something that I advocate for in our Dignity Institute. But it's also, I think it's going to be about training and educating this next era of practitioners to know how to do the work to dignify human beings, even when they're working for entities that don't have that value system. I think there's an issue with the workforce. Everyone is just kind of doing their job in the interest of innovation and capital. And we got to stop just doing our job. I think that Vision Zero example is particularly interesting. It's a, it's a Swedish idea originally. It came, as you know, Dr. Thomas, it came from the transport agency in Sweden. And it was one engineer, actually, who stepped up and said, it's, you know, this is an ethical question. This isn't a question of um, economics. Previously, it was almost accepted. There was an acceptable level of death, if you'd like, if I can put it like that, from road traffic accidents and so on. You just said, well, this is the deal you get if you have cars at this scale. You're going to have X number of people dying every year. We just have to accept that. It was never overtly put like that, of course. You would never say a politician saying that. And this engineer just said, that, that, that cannot be right. This is not an ethical position. It has to be zero. The only ethical position is zero here. Zero death, zero major injuries from road traffic accidents. Incredibly hard to push through, I think. But, you know, it's just fascinating. That's where I'm, you know, I would say I'm hopeful, actually, that within an administrative context, a super bureaucratic, very engineering-led context of the traffic agency, someone stood up and said, no, it can be this other way. And then it's become this international campaign. And with amazing results. We, you know, we've halved, at least, if not quartered. The interesting thing is... We, we haven't got to zero. <laughs> so it's never got to zero. It got to zero maybe in Oslo last year, right? And Helsinki potentially the year before, but they're, you know, they're special kind of not really cities in the Oakland sense or the New York sense or the Melbourne sense, right? So what would it take to get to zero is going to take a much more ambitious, courageous approach, I think. That I, that's maybe where I'm less hopeful. I haven't seen that in the same way that Dr. Thomas said. I don't see that coming from the current logic. But there was a glimmer of hope. The previous thing did come from the current logic. So, yeah, I think it's, it's so interesting, that one example. Sorry, India, back to, back to your question. No, well, no, that's a much better uh, place to end it on, I think. And it kind of also refutes what I was saying earlier that, oh, like maybe it's not up to designers to kind of solve these systems, but actually sometimes it can come down to one person standing up and saying, actually, no, this is wrong, or this data is wrong. I was just wondering if anyone had any sort of closing thoughts. I would say in terms of like coming back to our creative responsibility is really, really important to make changes for what we can do within our own, let's say, remit. If I think about a mobility system of the future, definitely think about an ecosystem that has got access rather than ownership so as we said like more service-based which is also possibly sustainable across all the production change but at the same time I think we still need to deliver to people experiences that are unique so we we still talk about sharing but at the same time I think that sometimes mobility needs to have that level of 
protection, private, and also the ability of, of self-expression that sometimes you need. Uh, therefore, the challenge is how to mix all these things together, right? And not to make, let's say, a mobility system just a sort of anonymous service, but still make it a sort of mean to empower self-expression, whatever and whoever you are. It's about developing something that feels much more connected with community and people at the heart and the centre and becoming this nested ecosystem which you could kind of build out from that centre of this community and people. And I think design is, is about solving these real problems and, and maybe it's a smaller problem at the beginning and it can become a much larger thing. But again, it's also, it's not just solving the problem, it's adding that creativity to make something unique and exciting. Well, thank you all so much, everyone. I really appreciate you all taking the time and for being prepared to take this conversation in so many interesting directions. My notepad next to me is just like filled with so many different things. Thank you for listening to Where Next, a podcast made in collaboration with Matt Project Office. The series is hosted by Matt, along with me, Ollie Stratford and India Block. It's produced by Evie Hall with editing from Oscar Yell. To catch our next episode of Where Next, you can follow Matt Project Office on Instagram at at mattprojecto. That's O for office. And you can also subscribe to Desenio Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from.